Welcome. This episode of Inside the Genome is a recent recording of Myriad Oncology Live, a webinar hosted by me, Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs at Myriad Oncology. The opinions and views expressed in this recording do not necessarily represent those of Myriad Genetics or its affiliates. To participate in a future recording, please visit Myriad Oncology for a list of dates, times, and subjects. I look forward to exploring the world of genetics with you all. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Myriad Oncology Live. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and uh, as always, we'll, we'll start with a little housekeeping. Um, so uh, yes, here we are. So uh, today we're talking about uh, pros and cons of germline genetic testing uh, for all breast cancer patients. So we have two special guests. We have uh, Dr. Paul Barron and Dr. Mark Robson. Uh, as always, we have uh, Shelly running the chat, and we'll, we'll do some introductions uh, in, a, in a minute or so. Um, and then, you know, we have a little break. I mean, you know, the summer has been a little light. You know, people are getting back into their, uh, you know, hopefully pre-COVID routines, unless you live in Los Angeles, where I live, where things are going the opposite way. And I know a lot of states are having COVID problems. Uh, so hopefully we can, you know, continue to keep things under control and we don't, uh, you know, take step backwards. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of people are opening up and, uh, so I'm, I'm spacing the webinars a little bit, but also with the summer, uh, break, um, you know, and a lot of people getting their kids back up to school, vacations and everything else, we've been, um, you know, giving a little space. So then July is a big travel time. So we, we put a little space there. Uh, and so after today, we're really not going to regroup until uh, mid-August, and that will be with uh, Holly Peterson will be on from the Cleveland Clinic, and we're going to be talking about uh, polygenic risk scores for all ancestries. This was, um, you know, kind of sought after a little bit. Um, we did a uh, ASCO presentation. I think people just want to learn a little bit more about it, and we can just talk in general about, you know, where the field's at uh, with polygenic risk scores uh, and, and bring people up to speed. Uh, so yeah, if you're looking for something, definitely uh, that'll be a good one to put on your calendar. And if you click on the link, you can register and it'll pre-populate uh, your calendar uh, with the Outlook time. And then uh, I'll build more out after that um, uh, as we get closer. And then I uh, did want to point people uh, to the podcast because we are now, um, uh, for those that can't attend, we are keeping at least just audio of these uh, so people can listen to them on the back end. Um, and it's getting a little convoluted. I still need to work through this a little bit, but um, anything that says Myriad Live on the Inside the Genome podcast, uh, that is uh, one of these webinars. So we're uh, just uh, putting them up. And, um, and then if, if you see something like this, um, like a look at breast cancer gene expression assays with Dr. Adam Bressy or the psychosocial aspects of hereditary cancer. If it doesn't say Myriad Oncology Live in front of it, then it's uh, a regular 15 minute, you know, 20 minute podcast where, you know, I'll, I'll sit down with somebody and we'll go through, uh, you, know, an, um, you know, key finding in the field or aspect of the field. Um, so yeah, without uh, further ado, let me uh, do more of a formal introduction. Uh, I'm gonna stop sharing um, and Oh, also, yeah, I, I should have mentioned. So Shelly is running the chat. If uh, you have, uh, you know, questions, uh, and again, the whole the whole purpose of this is just to be able to ask questions. It's for education. You know, anything is fair game. You can bring up whatever you want. Doesn't you're not going to offend uh, anybody on here. Um, and uh, we try to keep them theme based. 
Uh, today, we're really talking about, you know, uh, hereditary breast cancer genetic testing and, and kind of the, the present nature of the field. But hey, if you have a, a colon cancer PMS2 question and this burning and you got to get it off your chest, then uh, feel free to ask that as well. Um, if you uh, want to unmute and ask a question, I think it's always the most, you know, then we can have a rich dialogue. If uh, you're not, un if you're uncomfortable, uh, you know, uh, coming off mute, that's fine too. Uh, you can just send uh, whatever question you have to Shelly and she will make sure they get answered or you could just put it in the chat and we'll, you know, we're always combing the chat and making sure everything gets addressed. Um, so yes, Dr. Robson and Dr. Barron, thank you both for coming on. Um, um, I, and, you know, we can, we can do quick introductions. Um, you know, both of you are, are very well nationally known and even internationally. Um, you know, Dr. Barron, do you want to uh, tell people, you know, what you do at Northwell and, and your interest in <laughs> sure. genetics, I guess, in general? And, and, yeah, it's in genetics. It's a fun subject. Um, I'm the uh, chief of breast surgery here and director of the breast program. I have a major interest in um, high-risk patients. And um, so thank you for inviting me. Yeah, no, thank you for coming on. And Dr. Robson, uh, do you want to let people know what you do at Memorial Sloan Kettering? Your role is yeah, changing. So I, yeah, always changing, right? So I'm Mark Robson. I am the chief of the breast medicine service here at Memorial. Um, prior to that, I was the clinic director for the clinical genetic service here. So yeah, good. well, thank you. Oh, go ahead. Mm -mm, that's good. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you both for coming on. Um, and so, you know, I, I have uh, some things on my agenda to work through. But again, you know, if, if questions arise as we're going through this, um, you know, let's let's address them. I think, you know, first I wanted to just uh, talk about uh, a new paper that uh, came out that you know people may not be familiar with. Uh, let me share my screen, and that that is the Olympia trial. Um, here we go. Hopefully people can see that. Geez, I have no idea what people see. I have multiple screens. Does that look normal to everyone or does that look horrible? That's good. Oh, okay. We're seeing your uh, Adobe reader. Okay, yeah, that works. Yeah, so um, this was a uh, study uh, recently published uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. So if people haven't seen this, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good one to, to look over. Um, and it's looking at, um, you know, a laparib uh, specifically for BRCA1 and 2 mutation carriers uh, and, and more of the frontline setting. So after chemotherapy, uh, you know, should you just, you know, watch someone, you know, give them an endocrine therapy or should you also add in, um, you know, a PARP inhibitor. And so it was a very well, uh, you know, done study. You see here, at, uh, you know, very large study. I mean, 1,836 patients. Um, you know, I'll go through down here. Yeah, there's some, you know, survival uh, curves here. So essentially, it's showing, um, um, you know, with disease-free survival that, yeah, people are faring better uh, if you put them on a laparib uh, versus placebo. Um, and so, you know, this is, you know, I would say has been fairly practice changing, um, at least from a treatment standpoint, um, you know, and we have recent um, emergent ASCO updated guidelines, uh, also the NCCN for breast treatment, uh, unbeknownst to me, actually, I just saw yesterday, um, uh, they uh, also just released 
updated guidelines uh, on how to take care of patients then after the front line, after uh, initial chemotherapy, if you have triple negative or uh, HER2 negative cancer. And I should, yeah, phrase that this is a HER2 negative disease. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to just to get, um, you know, our, our, some of our experts opinion of, of how this may change, you know, how, how do you think this is going to change the field? Because it seems like right now, there's a lack of guidance on uh, who are we testing uh, for, for breast cancer um, uh, from a germline standpoint. And this seems like a fairly practice changing trial, but um, there's still a, an absence of uh, clarity uh, beyond the American Society of Breast uh, surgeons who uh, in 2018 said, yeah, we should be testing everyone or consider at least testing everyone. And I, I just wanted to get get opinions. I mean, maybe we could start with uh, Mark. I, I don't know, you're, you're pretty intimate to all this and you're even a co-author on that American Society of Breast Surgeon paper. Yeah, actually to be clear, I'm not. I, I, oh, um, I thought you were. I was part of the panel, but I did oh, not. Oh, okay. But I did not actually. Okay. <laughs> Sign on to the final. Well, always quote you as part of the authorship. <laughs> so, I know. So do, did you I, did, did I, you support I, the concepts? I guess. <laughs> um, I supported part of them, but not all of them, and and I mm -hmm. think that's why I sort of threaded the needle, and we'll undoubtedly get into how I felt about that at some point along the line. So, so this is a this is a major major paper. Um, I think a couple of things to be clear about are that um, this actually is not all patients who have germline BRCA mutations. This is explicitly a group of patients who have relatively high risk disease. And, and there's a, there's a mm -hmm. particular set of complicated definitions of that. But um, ultimately, you know, nearly 80% of the patients on this trial wound up being triple negative patients who either had residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy or who had um, or who had a T2 or greater and one or greater cancer. So, so decent sized cancers and or node positive cancers. And there was a subset of hormone receptor positive cancers that were also pretty high risk, a lot of residual disease after NEO or four or more positive nodes. So this is not all BRCA carriers. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's, high it's, risk yeah, it's HER2, HER2 negative high risk. HER2 negative, high risk, and um, but non-metastatic, yeah, non-metastatic early stage. Yeah. So, so in the United States, I mean, there are already criteria for uh, allowing or, or supporting the testing of basically everybody with triple negative disease under the age of sixty, and you know, pretty reasonable proportion of people with um, with hormone receptor positive disease, and and so the two. And then you've got a number of other kind of pieces of data that feed in here, which is that you have Fergus Couch's data with, with Sid Yada <clears throat> showing that, you know, the sensitivity of, of just an age cutoff of 65 accounts for, you know, more than 98% of the BRCA carriers. Mm -hmm. And, um, and remember, in the United States, 40% of breast cancer is diagnosed after the age of 65. So, so I think that, yeah, th this does give another reason to expand testing criteria in, in the younger patient population. Um, and I don't know that, that sort of waiting until somebody meets high-risk criteria is necessarily pragmatic. Uh, but I do think that there's a step between that and saying, you know, automatically do this as a biomarker for everybody. Um, 
because there's the, the cost benefit payout over the age of 65 is pretty limited. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we had Fergus on last week, actually, um, but we, we should brought up the is that those were good studies. I would have liked to hear his his thought there, too. Um, yeah. And what I mean, what do you think of then about the um, the American Society of Breast Surgeon guidelines uh, that you are not an author of for full discussion? <laughs> so, so what, that, I, that I assisted with the development of, but actually, yeah. because those made a big splash. You know, I was at City of Hope when those came out, and it was like, oh, yeah. Like, I mean, the day they came out, everybody was talking about it. And, you know, would it actually change the field? And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think when those came out, um, uh, it seems like, uh, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, I'd like to hear your opinion, uh, Mark, and then I'd like to hear how, you know, Paul, how that maybe has changed Paul's uh, view too on, you know, genetic testing. So my view is that if the question was, should we test every breast cancer patient for BRCA1 and BRCA2? Um, and you know, maybe toss in PALB2. And you know, I don't necessarily know that I'd have a huge amount of heartburn with that. I think the payoff over age 65 and the cost effectiveness over age 65 as a kind of system level question is, is pretty poor. Um, but, you know, just if that was all that we were talking about, that would be fine. But that's not all we're talking about it, because nobody does BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing nowadays. They do multi-gene panel testing. And I think my view is that we still have not come down to a... Um, comprehensive way to make sure that people who have moderate penetrance variants get the right care. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the things that we're trying to do, you know, you guys have got at least some PRS in some patients and, and you know, Antonis and the group are building out models. But, but when we're winding up with, with papers touting finding large numbers of, of you know, just whatever, YH alterations as being mm-hmm. kind of improvements of diagnostic yield, I, I, I think that those not only overstate benefit, but also neglect the potential for harm. In the prompt experience, we have people who undergo prophylactic oophorectomy. We're putting together our prophylactic mastectomy experience and our contralateral prophylactic mastectomy experience. And um, it, it's kind of frightening. People do things that they shouldn't be doing on the basis of risk. And we also know even in the unaffected setting from the polygenic risk work that there's a substantial number of these people who actually are not even at increased risk. Mm -hmm. So if I can leave all that out and just do BRCA1, BRCA2, I probably would be a little bit more supportive. Yeah, and one of of the perplexing things in particular is PALB2, where we're seeing it you know, it certainly is separating a bit from ATM and CHECK2, and it's looking um, more between BRCA2 and those genes. Um, and then Fergus did bring up last week, which, uh, um, you know, we're seeing the same in a paper with Mary Daly and Allison Curian that we're putting together right now, uh, that uh, PALB2 doesn't seem to have, you can't really use that 65 or 45 age cutoff. It does seem like it has a persistent increased risk for breast cancer, even out 
uh, well past 65. So uh, we still have to sort out, you know, how that fits into all of this. And, and that's important as well, because, you know, there's some growing literature showing that, you know, partner and the partner in uh, localizer BRCA2, PALB2, is, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, it's an HRD gene, and it looks like uh, similarly to BRCA1 and 2, it is very responsive when it's driving a cancer to uh, PARP inhibitors. Yeah, I mean, TBCRC48 is exciting for the, for the you know, 11 patients who are on it. I, I think we'll, yeah. we'll kind of have to see what happens as that gets kicked out a little bit, and, and whether or not that degree of efficacy stands up, and, mm -hmm. and whether or not it's durable. I don't even uh, know about that. So what is what is that? Uh, what do you mean? Trial? Yeah. Uh, so TBCRC forty eight was was published. No, it was it was it was published by Nadine Tong. It's a oh, team. that's the Nadine and Judy Garber. Yeah. Yeah. There's okay. a lot. There was a yeah, lot yeah, a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of folks. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, looking at patients who had non BRCA alterations and finding it. But yeah. anyway, so so I think. You have to separate. I want to just kind of reflect on a comment that you made is that you have to separate out the question of whether or not there is risk associated with the gene out past X age. I mean, you know, BRCA1, BRCA2 have risks out past age 65, clearly. And what is the diagnostic yield of testing that population, right? Mm -hmm. Because, because, yeah, okay, you may have an increased risk that extends out past age 65. But still, the the yield of among all people who have breast cancer over age sixty five, what proportion of them are due to PALB two, is going to potentially be a lot lower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, agreed. But anyway, PALB two still not driving care. We don't know what contralateral cancer risks are in PALB two, for instance. Mm -hmm. I mean, whether or not that should be driving prophylactic contralateral mastectomy data, I'd be curious to know what Dr. Barron thinks about that. Yeah, well, what do, what do you think, Dr. Barron, about all this? I mean, how how have you been, has your practice changed over the last few years um, uh, from your patient population and how you're managing? Well, I think there's two aspects. I mean, we're mainly here focusing on the patients themselves and, and their mutations. I think also it's important that, to emphasize that you know, when we find these mutations and there's all these first degree relatives who are at risk for uh, having the same mutations and, and their cancer risk. So, um, as a surgeon, one of, the, one of the things I've always been struck by is that these days, a lot of times what drives patients' interest in getting tested is not only for themselves, but also to worry about their daughters or their sisters or their granddaughters. And I think that's um, an important piece of this also, um, not to be, not to be. <laughs> oh yeah, um, no. Not mentioned. So um, I, I can't give you specifics on the PALB2, but I will say that, um, you, you know, certainly, uh, you guys probably are more more breadth of knowledge on that, but certainly um, the patients who we do find uh, pathogenic mutations on and the other pathogenic mutations in the BRCA1, 2, PALB2, and optical mastectomy um, usually want contralateral mastectomy in that setting. So, um, and certainly, you know, we talk about the pros and cons of mastectomy versus a breast conservation and how you follow them closely. And a lot of these patients, you know, you, when you go through all the risks and stuff, um, they do have an elevated risk for subsequent cancers and they are worried about frequent uh, mammograms, frequent MRIs, uh, low thresholds by radiologists recommending biopsies in these patients. And it, it can be very stressful to a lot of patients. And so uh, I think it's very valuable to know 
if they do have a significant uh, mutation, significant high-risk mutation. And so I do have a fairly low threshold for recommending uh, testing for those. Um, and I certainly hear everything you said, Mark, about the, <clears throat> the, the low-risk genes that are included in some of these panels. And, and they, they, their risk is pretty negligible. But, um, but if you do find one of these high-risk genes, it can really be life-altering and family-altering. Yeah, no, excellent. Excellent feedback. Um, and so, so in your practice, I mean, are, you know, how are you um, clinically thinking through these? I mean, are you, um, you know, if, if um, are you uh, recommending mastectomies, you know, kind of leaving it to the patient, uh, leaving it in a consider realm? Um, I mean, are, are you bringing an age or using models? Well, a whole bunch of things, everything from, um, yeah, you, you bring in their risks of, uh, of uh, sub subsequent cancers. Um, you bring in their, um, uh, have you, you referenced the Ask to Me software, which I think is very helpful, where I'll, I'll pull out their, <clears throat> their, their history and, and pull up the graphs and I'll show them what their risk is for mm -hmm. developing a cancer or a second cancer if they haven't, uh, if they've already had one. And uh, again, it gives comfort to a lot of these people. Like, um, like I know my, I've personally heard Mark speak a number of times and uh, he emphasizes the importance of age in a lot of these cancers. For example, the, the um, risk of certain cancers, like just simply like ovarian cancer, BRCA2 is older than younger. So um, <clears throat> that may be, you know, maybe less urgency to consider oophorectomy in a BRCA2 patient than a BRCA1. And, and I've seen you also show that data for other of these uh, moderate risk genes too, as far as uh, mod modifying age of testing based on what gene mutation they find in the family. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do, Mark, are you using Ask2Me in your practice? Um, I mean, what do you think about it as a tool? So I think it's challenging because, I mean, I. I like Kevin a lot, and I and I appreciate everything that he and his group do. I, I think the the problem is that particularly for moderate penetrance genes, um, it's very clear that it's a much more modifiable factor than than BRCA one and BRCA two, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so I fear that there is a suggestion of precision which is unwarranted you know just based upon largely a, a single risk estimate from a single study so so I, I i don't actually use it and i think um particularly for atm check two which have you know significant er positive components that are likely to be modified um, I, I think it really risks either underestimating or overestimating what the individual's risk happens to be. And, and we don't have any data for contralateral risk estimation, actually, for, for any of the moderate penetration. You have some for check two, but, but yeah. it's not. I mean, you, that was your paper a few years ago. Or yeah. First author on it. yeah. You have a little bit for check two, but it's not great. ATM, you know, pathogenic mutations actually don't have any contralateral risk yeah. in, in weak here. So, so I think 
moderate penetrance genes, I, I always conceptualize them as risk factors that interact with other risk factors to produce some global risk. And we are not incorporating the whole range of, of potential modifiers into these estimates at this point. So I find them very hard to use. Um, and a substantial, like I said earlier, a substantial number of women who have moderate penetrance variants will actually not have a greater than 20% lifetime risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, no, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, doing it off age is, um, yeah, definitely the, the way to go, I mean, as a starting point, so no question, and we, we clearly need better tools. Um, uh, you know, I, I can tell you, from being in practice and learning from, you know, Jeff Weitzel, um, yeah, we would just, you know, archaically do back of the napkin calculations uh, for using 1.5% chance per year for a BRCA1 or 2 carrier. Um, you know, we, we kind of made up numbers for moderate risk genes ranging from 0.75 to 1%. And, you know, it's just kind of loosely grounded in uh, the current data that's out there. I mean, Paul, you know, so, so you, I mean, you, you stick, it sounds like pretty, I mean, do you give patients in the, the readout when you, um, you know, run ask to me or, you know, do you, um, you know, see it as, as, uh, you know, do you, do you kind of give patients like, well, this is like the general range or this is what we would expect. And, and yeah, how do you, how do you, do you see patients eyes uh, get bigger at certain numbers? I mean, you know, what's, what are you seeing on the, the breast surgeon clinical side? Yeah, actually it tends to go the other way. It tends to be more comforting because, you know, most of those curves are slowly sloping upwards, uh, a few exceptions, uh, but most of them, um, you know, if they show that they're risk of cancer really doesn't get up there until like over 20% until they're like 70. It's hard to get too excited or worried about that. Um, and certainly for following them pretty closely. Uh, if their risk is a much younger age than, um, or if they already have cancer, then um, I do find that their you know, patients, you know, particularly I think follow NCCN guidelines, it's, it's reasonable to consider prophylactic mastectomies. Uh, a lot of the patients opt for that. I do have many patients though that you know, I tell them, look, we can follow you also an MRI on an annual basis, alternating mm -hmm. with um, a 3D mammogram every six months between those. I mean, so every six months screening one or the other. Um, some patients, that's what they do. And they choose to follow that course. And, that, and that's totally fine. I do yeah. think there's, you know, some geographic variations with that too. Um, you know, I was working in the South. I think a lot of those patients are more comfortable uh, with prophylactic mastectomies. And I think... Uh, in the Northeast and out West, they're more comfortable with just being followed. Yeah, I mean, uh, what are you uh, seeing your surgeon friends across the country, uh, you know, practice? Uh, how are you seeing them practice differently? I mean, are you, you noticing like these pockets that you just described? I mean, is there, is there I, some that are really recommending? Um, I, I think certainly for BRCA1 and 2, they'll be frequently recommending if you say that, you know, can do a mastectomy because depending on their age, that their risk is 20% of getting a second cancer in the next five to 10 years, some of those women opt for prophylactic surgery rather than having to be followed. Um, certainly if the risk is less than that, then, then they're, they're fine with being followed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we do have a question here from, um, I'm trying to come, I know Shelly fell off, you said, so I don't know if you can see the I'm chat. I'm here, but, I'm here. Um, so we have a couple questions from, um, Robin Palmer. Um, so 
since we're on this topic of genetic testing and BRCA1 and 2, she would want some clarity around, is BRCA1 considered a melanoma gene? If so, what's the magnitude of risk for somebody that has a, a variant in BRCA1? What's the magnitude or risk of melanoma with BRCA2? And do either BRCA1 and 2 have a clear risk for stomach cancer? And if so, what's that magnitude of risk in BRCA1 and 2? Um, she has more questions. We're going to pause it at those four or five there. So um, Dr. Barron and yeah. Robson can give their opinion. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Robin. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if either one of you have a good handle on melanoma and gastric cancer for these. Um, well, melanoma is slightly elevated with BRCA2. I don't know of a risk of BRCA1. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I thought there was just, oh, that was this. Uh, yeah, there was a um, JAMA oncology paper actually that just came out uh, looking at gastric cancer, at least. Uh, that came out last week um, from actually Memorial Sloan Kettering, now that I think about it. Were you on that paper, Mark? Oh. It was using your data. Maybe they um, have been from, using impact. Yeah, I was using the impact data. Um, I'm trying to remember who the first author was, but. Um, uh, oh, um, Elaine. Uh, um, uh, Sto that's Stoffel. Um, that would not have been a. <laughs> uh, I, I, I can think of it in a second. Uh, but um, that looked at gastric cancer versus esophageal and mutation rates uh, that were different uh, using the um, MSK impact uh, germline data. And off the top of my head, I mean, let me, I can probably find that paper, honestly. Yeah. May, may have had melanoma in it too. And Sophia did it with Elena. Yeah, Sophia, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me, uh, pull up. because uh, I, you know, so uh, that's a good paper to look at. We, we can, uh, Shelly, I know we spoke about it at some point last week too. Um, and so- I'll put could, the link in the chat in a second. Yeah, because that, that at least, uh, you know, it showed gastric cancer has a higher rate of high penetrant and moderate penetrant mutations. Um, it was like 11% versus 5% for esophageal, and it had the confidence intervals in there um, for the range. Um, and yeah, BRCA2, if I remember, was a bit higher. I think it was like 2.4% or something. I, I need to find the paper, but for gastric, at least, I don't remember if it had melanoma. Uh, listed, but that may be a good reference um, just in the, oh, because actually it wouldn't have melanoma because it was just gastric and versus esophageal. Melanoma, I can't really think of um, any um, sentinel studies. I mean, we know that uveal melanoma may be up in BRCA2, you know, melanoma risk in general. I really can't point to a great source. I mean, I don't think the, off the top of my head, the NCCN, you know, is kind of along the lines of raising awareness, but I don't think there's any uh, recommended you know, screening at the moment uh, for a BRCA uh, two carrier. Like all goes back. I mean, this all goes back to the old registry studies. I mean, there's some very old studies looking at cancer risk in in these families, and and you know the BRCA two families. There was some JNCI stuff that came from the old uh, you know breast cancer linkage consortium groups, and you know, the the challenge is that. Um, so what happens is, is they look at the incidence of these particular malignancies in the families, and then they, and then they sort of compare them to standard incidence rates in the in the in the population, and say, okay, you know, the, the incidence ratio is X, Y, or Z. But you have sort of um, 
a, a lot of potential biases in there. And so, yeah, you, you do sometimes see a little bit of increased risk of gastric. You see a little bit of increased risk of cholangio. You see a little bit of increased risk of, of, um, of, of plain old melanoma. But I agree with you that none of them kind of raise to the level of requiring any specific screening. And interestingly, most of them are BRCA2. I mean, BRCA1 is pretty much breast and ovary, pancreas, and you know, there's been a couple of suggestions of maybe prostate, but that's about it. The one study suggesting colon risk was, was kind of a little iffy because it included patients in that study as being BRCA-related colon cancer when they were like anal cancers, mm-hmm. so, which are clearly different. So I think... Also, you know, melanoma, a lot of these people who have the BRCA mutations in the original families were Europeans, and some of them were kind of perhaps a little pale, and maybe there was another melanoma risk associated with that. It was just correlation, not causation. So screen, I mean, telling people to check their skin once a year is not a bad idea, but I don't think you need to tell them to do anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Personally, I mean, I would put in, you know, kind of do a general review of systems if I, you know, in my high risk clinic, um, just make sure they're not noticing anything unusual and kind of talk about the ABCDEs of melanoma uh, and, and leave it somewhat at that. I, I think it's interesting, you know, where the future may be going with this, um, you know, and Mark, you had brought it up about, you know, kind of like there's just a background. That's the way I kind of see it. <laughs> there's kind of a general background elevation of risk for multi- a multitude of cancers when you have disruptions and, uh, you know, these uh, oncogenic pathways like uh, homologous recombination and really tumor suppressor pathways, I should say, to be accurate. Um, and it seems like it's, it's leading towards, um, you know, even though one thing by itself may not hit a threshold for screening, taken together, uh, there may be some rationale one day to do something. Uh, and, you know, you see the field of early detection. I mean, you just had uh, GRAIL launch him. I mean, there's a lot of companies now racing towards early detection. I could see over time, you know, not anytime soon, because, you know, it's got to even be figured out, you know, from a baseline and how that's going to adapt to the general population and everything. But, you know, I could see over time that being a nice tool uh, for people at high risk uh, for a lot of cancers that taken together in aggregate do equal 3% lifetime risk or 5% lifetime risk. Uh, Because at that point, you're talking either, I mean, you'd have to have some sort of strategy like that or go to like a whole body imaging type strategy, uh, which is um, probably not going to be realistic. So, well, sure. I mean, paying cancer CTDNA screening would be wonderful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that'd be great. But, and obviously it's the holy, no pun intended grail and lots of people are working towards it, but, but, um, you know, we're not there yet. And so, the question then becomes, you know, absent kind of a, a pan cancer screening tool, um, what are the thresholds at which it's worthwhile putting people through multi-system screening and, and basically turning their life into a very expensive series of, of screening visits, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you think about cancer risk in the general population, right? I mean, Let's just take pancreas cancer, for instance, because this is a place where there's a lot of discussion right now. Should we be doing pancreas cancer screening? I mean, even for BRCA2, pancreas cancer risk is like 4 or 5%, right? I mean, it's not enormous. Um, now, pancreas cancer is a terrible disease, and I'm not trying to mitigate that. But 
But on the other hand, pancreas cancer is also the number four cancer in the United States and probably before long will be number two. And yet we're not proposing population screening. Right? Mm -hmm. so, yeah. so, you know, we're, we're, and of course, there's no evidence of efficacy of pancreatic cancer screening. Yeah. So yeah. the challenge is we generate these numbers. We, we tell people you're at increased risk without necessarily being very good about quantifying it. And then, you know, in this kind of circular reasoning, say, therefore, you have to undergo all these additional tests, which themselves have both financial and potentially medical consequences. And by the way, are not available to large segments of our population who are either underserved or underinsured or, or just have geographic limitations. So it becomes, yeah. in a way, unfair mm -hmm. to start doing that. Yeah. I think that was part of um, Robin's question, that series of questions. When you look at the personal and family history of melanoma or stomach cancer, understanding what the management is, but then when some of these patients are self-pay and they don't have, you know, the means, is it, should you do the genetic testing? And then, then you're stuck with a quandary of not being able to follow through on what those recommendations might be, given the uncertainty of the of the strength of the risk. Yeah, yeah. Well, but for BRCA1, BRCA2, you have hardcore interventions, right? I mean, if nothing else, there's oophorectomy. I mean, until you get into cancers, like, yeah, right. Until you melanoma get into things, like, stomach. cancer, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, right, it's, it's incumbent upon those who create the screening guidelines to, to mm -hmm. have a, a relatively degree, relatively high degree of confidence in the clinical validity of the association before making recommendations, right? Mm -hmm. Because of these equity issues, otherwise, I mean, because of lots of things, but these equity issues are, are, are not small. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I wanted can, to switch. Oh, go ahead. Um, I was just going to ask if we could switch gears to check two for a moment. Sure. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is a Robin question again. Um, so thank you, Robin. She, yeah, she always has great questions. Um, she wanted to hear from um, you, Dr. Robson and Dr. Barron, about the magnitude of risk of prostate cancer with check two. Is it considered a prostate gene state gene for all prostate cancer? Um, she, she goes on to share that some providers seem to do genetic testing for any prostate cancer, and the literature suggests to her that in the presence of a check 2 gene, there may be it could be more aggressive, but she's less inclined to offer genetic testing to any personal family history of prostate cancer. She also shared that astomy quotes risk for thyroid and renal cancer with check two, and uh, she's not super confident about those risks um, or certain. So I would love, we'd love any insight you could shed on that. Yeah, I've been talking a lot. I'll let Dr. Perrin take care of it. Oh yeah, because this is my area of expertise. I know, it's a press surgeon. <laughs> No. I, mean, I, I don't want to. I, I can weigh in a little bit here where, um, you know, I, I you know, at least in my mind, I mean, you know, the BRCA2 literature in prostate actually looks decent, um, you know, that it may increase. And, and in the sense of, you know, if, if you have a guy and, uh, you know, is found to have a low risk prostate cancer and you're trying to sort out 
you know, active surveillance or treatment, um, yeah, you, you probably want to know the BRCA2 status. That's supported by the Philadelphia Consensus Guidelines. Um, you know, I, I would not be shocked if that, you know, continues to get perpetuated in, in different guidelines. I think, you know, I'm, I'm a little less sold on, um, you know, BRCA1, uh, ATM, there's a bit of data too about aggressiveness, you know, check two, I actually am not really that familiar with at all. Um, I know it's reported here and there, you know, we just have to realize, you know, there's, there's a high background risk, um, you know, just in the general unselected population of, you know, um, you know, European folks. Uh, for check two mutation. So, um, you know, we, we always have to make sure that studies are, are done well. You know, I, I do suspect that, yeah, there's probably a background rate for, for anything that's, you know, mucking up a, you know, homologous recombination deficiency pathway or, you know, uh, tumor suppressor pathway. Um, and it's just hard to tease out, you know, okay, so, you know, getting back to, you know, what Dr. Robson about, was talking about where similar to gastric cancer, it's like, okay, even if there's a little bit of increased risk, let's say your chance you know, for prostate cancer as a male, I, I still don't even know what the chance for prostate cancer in a male is, I, to be honest. I mean, I don't know if anyone on the line does, but I'm always perplexed when I look at the data. But uh, let's say it's, let's call it 15%, <laughs> um, you know, and, and uh, if, if it raises your risk to 16%, you know, is that, is that actionable? Um, you know, what if it dialed it down instead of, you know, 50 to a median age of, you know, 49, is that actionable? I, or from 60 to, you know, let's say like 54 or something, you know, is that, is that going to change your screening where we recommend everybody by the age of 50 get screened anyways with annual, you know, DREs plus or minus, you know, PSA. So yeah, I think we have a lot to learn on, uh, you know, the relevance of, of um, you know, some of these genes in particular in, um, in prostate, but we're, we're getting data. I mean, there's a lot of studies ongoing right now. I mean, do you think, I mean, do either of you think that there's there's a BRCA3 out there. Do you think there's some other impactful gene out there that we've yet to find? Probably um, no, two so. is probably the closest to that. Um, you know, the, at least from a you know somewhat prevalent in the population. Um, you know, looking like it causes risks uh, higher than you know ATM and check two, but yet not quite as high as probably two BRCA1 and you know, two. Mm -hmm. Probably to sort of lower end of BRCA2 risks, you know, and with strong family history modification is probably up in there. But no, I don't, I don't think there's another single high penetrance allele that's floated around out there that, that we haven't yeah. found. And it's just Turga said the same last week. He thinks we're pretty done. There could be some discrete families here and there, but um, yeah, he didn't think there was anything we're really missing at this point across global populations. Just too many exomes have been sequenced. I mean, I think at this point it's unlikely. But um, so, our so our biggest challenge then is to find the patients who have the BRCA1 and 2 before they get breast cancer. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a big challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think if there's going to be a place where there's an impact, I think this idea of screening, you know, and then it becomes this fascinating question of, of how does that actually work, right? I mean, it, and it is true that, that starting with the affected if you had effective cascading you would you know ken and i had published a paper about this a while ago you know you get to saturation if you will much more quickly through through cascade testing than you do through population screening unless you have basically a, a newborn population screening program that's mandated which i think is going to be um, untenable.
uh, for a variety of reasons. So, so if you do have aggressive cascading, and the problem is cascading doesn't work that well. Mm -hmm. you, you identify your, your carriers, but, um, but unfortunately, you know, the family uptake is not what you would think it would be. I mean, you'd think everybody would pile on, but they, they don't. I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, excuse the pun, but there's a lot of genetic testing skepticism that well predates our vaccine skepticism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you make a good point. I mean, you know, if we can, I mean, BRCA1 and 2, yeah, I mean, you know, there's, you know, uh, some data in Ashkenazi Jewish uh, populations. There was a paper published, I don't know, a year or two ago. It was, Sorry, Shelley. <laughs> and I, I think it was in JAMA Oncology again, I thought. Um, I can't remember the authors at all. Just to make it more fun. But um, you don't have to find it. But it was, it was looking at overall survival uh, if you knew your BRCA1 and 2 status prior to uh, being diagnosed with breast cancer. And it showed that, yeah, you had an improved uh, overall survival. And it was thought that it was a lot of just lead time bias because you were picking up, um, uh, I spoke with Allison Curran about this too, that yeah, you, you picked up, you know, if, if you were identified with a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, uh, the screening did what it was supposed to do, which was, you know, you went into a higher risk screening program, um, and then you were identified earlier with a breast cancer at a lower stage and had better overall survival. So I mean, that's the only paper I really know in the space um, that, um, has made an impact. I mean, but Dr. Yeah, that assumes that, that makes a lot of assumptions that are not yeah. necessarily supportable in our healthcare system, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah. I mean that that may be great for for folks in a highly insured or or kind of like Northwell, a, a comprehensive health system, but you know that unfortunately does not represent a whole bunch of people in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So, so the implications for that are, are that if you, if you did, and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. I mean, if you did have some approach of essentially treating BRCA testing like a biomarker and doing it like ERPR, HER2, and BRCA, then, yeah, you would identify all the families, but, but would you actually really necessarily impact or move the needle because of all the people who couldn't get testing, who couldn't get care, who couldn't get screening? Yeah, um, and, and that's kind of worrisome. I mean, then you then you're stuck with this huge pool of people who are now theoretically at high risk, but you're not doing anything for them. But I, I would yeah. think that if you if you knew you were high risk, and there's got to be some insurers who can crunch the numbers. If you find the cancer earlier, it's going to be less costly than finding the cancers later on. Um, yeah, but breast MRI is probably not on most of the uh, most of the Affordable Care Act kind of catastrophic programs, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they are, that's a good point. But they have do met. There are new technologies coming down the pipe with like, you know, short MRIs and, and just screening ultrasounds. I mean, some of those tests may play a role in these populations. If you can, if you could truly identify a high risk population and follow them, you know, more closely. Yeah, and. Um... You know, what percentage are you seeing uh, in your practice, uh, Dr. Barron, that are unaffected? Are you doing a lot of, you said in the beginning you do some high-risk screening too. Right, I'm sure. what was the first part of the question? Uh, how much high-risk screening do you do in your practice? I can't remember. We see, we see a lot of patients who have uh, strong family histories and, and the only tools we have are, other than just regular exams, is uh, do they qualify for genetic testing and 
do they benefit from MRI? And uh, a lot of those patients retired acoustic on all these people and um, determined their lifetime risk of breast cancer. And if they're over 20%, they usually get an MRI. <clears throat> and, um, and if they meet, certainly if they meet NCCN criteria for testing, then uh, we recommend that. And certainly um, there are patients who don't meet NCCN criteria, but they're willing to pay out of pocket for less expensive genetic tests to see if they have it. And we, we counsel them on the pros and cons of that, but mm -hmm. that's an option for them. Yeah. I, I do want to address a question from um, Barbara Corey. Thank you. <clears throat> kind of, you know, and, and we have about 10 minutes left or not even, you know, five minutes if we want to be nice to people. But, <laughs> um, you know, uh, she brought up, you know, where do you see the futures of, uh, future going um, in all this? And I think that would be good to kind of close out on as a good question. I mean, you know, in the sense of PARP inhibitors, uh, it also makes me think of, you know, tumor normal testing. I mean, you know, you know, yeah, even though we're not there yet, maybe as a, uh, you know, biomarker from the germline side, I, you know, I don't know, Dr. Barron, are you seeing more, um, you know, in, in your practice or with your colleagues, are you seeing uh, people do more tumor normal testing, you know, as a workup of uh, breast cancer? Uh, I mean, do you think now PARPs, it seems like PARPs are going to come in uh, more? Oh, yeah. I, mean, I think it's going to change. It, it, the data is so new that I haven't really seen it yet, but I think the data is pretty impressive that it's going to change um, testing. And again, as Mark pointed out, we're talking about the high-risk, HER2 negative uh, cancers. Um, I was intrigued by that data that it seemed like, and maybe, maybe I read this wrong, it seemed like the placebo group had more uh, triple negative patients than the other group. Is that is that the case? Do you, do you know? It was pretty well balanced, in my opinion. I mean, there might have been a percentage point or so off, but but they were pretty straight. I think it was like seventy-eight versus seventy-six. I mean, it, it was pretty close. Yeah, and um, you know, in terms of um, and and Dr. Robson, I mean, you know, I know you're involved with a lot of this research and, and where PARPs are going. I mean, you know, uh, I would say, you know, even the paper we first spoke of, uh, Olympia in the beginning, is really kind of that moving forward and treatment extension from a paper you were uh, first author on, which was Olympiad. Uh, I don't know, if, you know, so Olympiad was don't looking at... Don't other names they could use for this stuff? What? Very confusing. Yeah, I know. I know. I don't know why. Yeah, why was the name that you say? <laughs> I don't remember. Olympiad was just one of those cute names. And then once you had Olympiad, it made sense to do Olympia. The next one is actually going to be Olympian, which is going to be a neo, oh, no. which is going to be a, a neoadjuvant study. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's kind of cute. Uh, yeah, I have no idea where Olympiad came from, I think. Yeah. So is that is that where you do see? I mean, I don't know. Is Olympian an actual? You know, so did you make that up, or is that an actual study in progress? It will be right a now? study. I oh, mean, okay. it, it's kind of in development right now. Okay. So yeah. so it will be a study. I, so I think Neo is, is is a place. You know, Jennifer Litton did Neo Tala, which was was neoadjuvant talazaparib, and, and if you do neoadjuvant therapy for the BRCA carriers, you have you know, about the same PCR rate as you do with conventional chemotherapy. So, so you know, in theory, that would work. I, I don't think anybody is likely to clinically feel very comfortable in a high-risk population just de-escalating all the way to PARP inhibitor alone, at least yet. So, so I think what's likely to happen is, you know, you might wind up with some 
I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I mean, we'll see what the trial design actually winds up being and how well it accrues. It, there's a lot of work using PARP inhibitors in combination with checkpoint inhibitors because, you know, coffee and donuts, mm -hmm. the two big things and put them yeah. together. One other, so there are two other places where I think you could look at PARP. One is in actually de-escalation in low-risk patients. So, so in other words, if you took patients who had small BRCA-associated um, cancers and then um, just tried to use PARP inhibitor in that setting, because particularly in the triple negative space in young patients, we're still given a lot of chemo for one centimeter or one and a half centimeter tumors. And, and if you could potentially treat them with PARP inhibitor alone, that might be beneficial. You know, you could argue, but, but at least that's one approach. And the other question is going to be prevention, right? Yeah. I mean, in Olympia, it is too early to tell whether or not there's going to be a decreased rate of second cancers. And, and most of the patients underwent mastectomy. So I'm not sure how many contralateral breasts are going to be at risk in that study. But, um, but there is already some hint, at least numerically, of a decreased risk of second cancers. And if that plays out, and at the same time you have, um, and at the same time you don't have any increase in AML MDS, then then you may well be able to start thinking about a prevention trial. Mm -hmm. And you run into all kinds of questions about dosing and toxicity because PARP inhibitors aren't that much fun to take. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's at least a, a question that could be asked. So, so I think that those are kind of where they're going to go in addition to expansion into other disease, other, other um, mm -hmm. genes like PALB2. Yeah. So I have one last question, and this is my question. Do you think that we will get to a point where all women that have breast cancer, regardless of the stage biomarkers, will have genetic testing? Well, it'll be standard of care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I will, you know, again, it gets back to that American, I mean, there is there is a guideline body right now, you know, suggesting that, uh, but I would say, yeah, the, the overall pickup across the United States, at least from, you know, what I've seen is, is uh, I don't have data, but I don't know how much that moved the needle in this country uh, towards it, it, that. Yeah, so, it definitely did. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say for a newly diagnosed cancer patient, I will talk to them about genetic testing in 100% of them, and yeah. um, uh, there and there are there are some that uh, go through it. Even if, if they don't meet NCCN guidelines because um, they're over 65 and et cetera, et cetera, um, they sometimes will want it anyway. And uh, so you are talking to everybody about it then. Yes. Like a, even, yeah, 70 year old woman that comes in and you at least bring it up and yeah. yeah well, that's why I brought up the cascade testing thing because. And frankly, the 70 year old woman is more concerned about her grandchildren than she is about herself. Mm -hmm. so, uh, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think you can make a case and a case probably will be made for, for at least BRCA1 and BRCA2 testing and everybody at 65 or younger. I, I mean, I, I don't think that that's particularly problematic. I, I think that there are, as we said earlier, I think there are issues about once you move above that, you're now kind of more into the questions of population screening than you necessarily are the questions of, of diagnostic testing, if you will, right? 
and they're, they're slightly different considerations. And um, if we continue to have to do, you know, broad panel testing without having a way to, to handle on the back end the consequences of that, because, you know, Shelley's here, one of the things we haven't talked about in this entire hour is the issue of how do you support this and how do you mm -hmm. support the yeah. patients from the standpoint of counseling, yeah. right? Because, you know, BRCA1, BRCA2 and a newly diagnosed breast cancer patient, that, that is perfectly within the purview of the breast surgeon to discuss the clinical implications of that. And then, you know, medical oncology can perfectly well discuss what the implications are for medical onc. But, you know, who's going to actually take care of the family members? And if we get actually past BRCA1, BRCA2 into these kind of much more complicated genes, um, then who's going to kind of help educate people about that? And uh, if we're doing population screening in you know, older patients, you know, who's going to, does that require a different kind of consent than if you're doing diagnostic testing when there's actually a clear medical implication? And, and I don't think we've wrestled with those questions well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots to be answered. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Barron. Uh, Dr. Robson, this was great discussion. Uh, thank you for those, uh, you know, Barbara, uh, Robin, uh, you know, folks chiming in on the chat, Shelly for running the chat. No, this was, this was great uh, discussion. I hope everyone learned something. I did. I didn't know about Olympian. So I'll be on the lookout for neoadjuvant. Still moving. In, in development. Yeah, exciting. <laughs> in development. So, uh, yeah, much to come. Yeah, so... Well, thank, thanks, everybody. And uh, yeah, uh, make sure, yeah, August, uh, mid-August, uh, put on your calendar. We'll, we'll get into PRS if anyone uh, is interested with uh, Dr. Peterson as the next one, and we'll, we'll build out the schedule from there. So thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Bye now. Thank you. Thank you.